Welcome to Calvary. I'm Carter and I'm the worship and tech director here. We want this to be a place where you can come and worship, get to know God and connect with our community. If you're new here, we can't wait to get to know you. Feel free to message us on social media or text the word hello to 587-323-1199 and we'll respond right back. This is a great first step to joining our church family. We also want you to experience daily personal encounters with God, discipleship, and community. If you want to learn more about our culture here, deepen your relationship with God, and find a small group that you can really connect with, we'd encourage you to talk to one of our volunteers or staff after the service. So who has seen more coyotes around the city recently? A bunch of us. You know, out where we live, we don't have fences around our properties, and if the dogs are inside, uh, coyotes can come right into our backyard. I think they're nonchalantly checking out the access to tasty snack of chickens. Well, Pippin, he is our tuxedo Bernadoodle. Here's a, here's a pic of him, as they call him. That's, that's a cross between a Bernie's Mountain Dog and a Poodle. He's a hunter and very protective of our property. He loves to go dig out pocket gophers and deposit their soaking wet, lifeless body at the bottom of our porch steps. But coyotes are a whole nother thing. They tend to hunt smaller animals alone, but anything larger, they actually hunt in a pack. And I have watched them seek to draw out one of our dogs away from our place, enticing them closer to where the pack is. The other day, I'm looking out our back patio door, much like that picture, and I watched Pippin um, rear up on his hind back legs, and he takes off running past the chicken coop right into the edge of the bush, and he is barking ferociously. I quickly step out onto the back porch and see two coyotes just inside our property, and I immediately call him. He stops barking for a moment. He's quiet. I call him again. He can hear me. He pauses, he looks in my direction, and then it's almost like you can see the wheels turning inside. He's thinking, well, I can hear my master, but those two coyotes are right there. They're right there, and I must protect my property. And so after a short little pause, he lunges forward another 10 or 15 feet, barking at these coyotes. I call him again, this time much more sternly. He pauses looks in my direction, and again chooses to ignore my call. Now, I know that he is convinced that his purpose and his objective is better and more important than his master's. And as he's just moving out of the puppy stage, I can see him struggling with who to obey, himself and his own objectives and his purpose or his master. Well, we are in a series, in the middle of a series in the book of Acts that we started back in September. Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. It follows immediately after four biographies of Jesus, who he was and his life. The book of Acts chronicles the historical events of the beginning of the church. And some may ask, well, why is it important for us to study this? I mean, that was 2,000 years ago. How does it relate to me today? Well, that's a great question. And I hope that in the next few minutes, uh, it will be answered. 
the establishment and the growth of the church, which is Christ's visible, physical body here on this earth, is the vehicle through which people around the world can hear the message of Jesus Christ and and the Heavenly Father's desire to know him personally. It's the place they can experience hope in the midst of a broken world and learn what it means to walk with him. However many days we have remaining in this life, and then eventually spend eternity with him. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been exploring different tactics of the enemy, the arch, the um, Satan, he's the arch enemy of God, his tactics against the church to keep people from hearing the message of Jesus and then turning to God through him. We've looked at three tactics. We've looked at persecution, isolation, and secret sin. Now, if you recall in chapter four, The first wave of persecution came as the Sanhedrin, which is Israel's supreme court. They arrested Peter and John for teaching about Jesus and his resurrection. And they were greatly disturbed that they were healing people in the name of this Jesus that they thought they had gotten rid of just a couple weeks earlier. And so to stop this movement from spreading further around Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin order, Paul Uh, sorry, Peter and John, to stop speaking to the people in Jesus' name. And what did Peter and John do? Well, they gathered the believers together and they prayed for more boldness. They said, God, let us go do this again with greater effectiveness and greater boldness. And the church continued to flourish, even through the judgment that came to Ananias and Sapphira, lying to the Holy Spirit when they died right there in church. That is the secret sin that we were talking about. And the awe of God's holiness and the respect for the Holy Spirit grew and spread. It purified the church. Miraculous signs, uh, miracles of healing, they increased to the point where people were bringing the sick from all of the surrounding communities around Jerusalem, bringing them along the road and along along the, the path where Peter would walk hoping that just his shadow would fall on them and they would be healed. Incredible miracles that God was doing during that time. This brings us to the middle of chapter 5. The high priest and his associates become filled with jealousy. Once again, they arrest the apostles, all of them this time, and throw them into prison. But let's read... What happens? Acts chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, you can, you can turn or, or your app. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 19. But the angel of the Lord came at night. He opened the gates of the jail and brought them out. Then he told them, go to the temple and give the people this message of life. And so at daybreak, the apostles entered the temple, as they were told, and immediately began teaching. This wasn't a still small voice that those of us who follow Jesus Christ often hear from God. And it it wasn't even some gentle prompt that tends to drift through our mind. This was a miracle. This was an actual angel of the Lord who tangibly brings them out of prison and speaks to them, commanding them to go back to what they were doing when they were arrested, sharing out in public this message of Jesus Christ the place where they can find this life 
that Jesus talked about when he was here on this earth. If you have your notes, uh, you can pull them out. We'll be following along them here today. Uh, I believe it's also on off our, our church uh, church Center app. If you don't have one of these notes, you can raise your hand and one of the ushers will bring them, uh, bring, bring you one. Why don't we pray? God, as we look at this text to understand what it is that you were calling them to do and what this looks like for us, I just pray that your word would come alive. I don't know where we are at today. I don't know what our individual stories are, the, the, the challenges and the struggles that we have, but I pray Holy Spirit, I know that you do. And so I just, I give you this time. Would you come and minister? Would you speak to each one of us? No matter where we at in our journey towards you, now in Jesus' name, amen. Why would the apostles go back to what they were, back into the fray? Well, it's because, it's because of this call from God to obey. You know, the next morning, after they were arrested, the Sanhedrin assemble. They are ready to put these men on trial. In their mind, these apostles are clearly in the wrong. And they are set to intimidate these men to stop talking this nonsense about Jesus Christ. But when they call for them from prison, the officers can't find them. They find the jail securely locked, they find the guards in place, but there's no one inside. Upon hearing this, it says that the Sanhedrin were perplexed. I imagine them kind of just sitting there, kind of going, now what? Like, how did this happen? When news comes to, that the apostles were actually in the temple courts again, teaching the people, the call to obey in this case comes from the angel when he instructs them, go to the temple and give the people this message of life. So the guards go to the temple again and they arrest them. Verse 27. Then they brought the apostles before the high council where the high priest confronted them. We gave you strict orders, he says, never again to teach in this man's name, he said. Instead, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him, and you want to make us responsible for his death. But Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than any human authority. Now, to be sure, believers are called to be conscientious citizens submitting to human authorities. This is taught in Romans 13, and a number of other places in Scripture. But if human authority misuses their God-delegated authority to command what God forbids or to forbid what he commands, then any follower of Jesus Christ must disobey human authority to obey God. And even though Voices were trying to lead these men, these apostles astray. The apostles were like, if you're forcing us into a corner here on this one, we have no choice but to go God's way, regardless of the consequences. And unlike Peter denying three times 
that he even knew Jesus on the night that Jesus was betrayed. God has been increasing the apostles' faith. Whether he delivers them from this persecution or not, they have a strong confidence inside that God is in control. And unlike many of us, their passion and their commitment to obey God has become greater than any kind of fear that they're experiencing inside. Obedience to God is a big deal. Now, depending upon our perception of God and his word, it's the Bible, God's commands can either seem like drudgery or joy. It all depends upon the relationship we have with him. Like kids with parents, if the relationship is strong and connected, obedience can be more joy-filled or at least bearable. Speaking of God's laws, his statutes, his precepts, his commands, his instructions, ordinance. King David, he writes this in Psalm 19, verse 10. He says, they are more desirable than gold. They are sweeter than honey. But if the relationship's not good, it's not, it's, it's not a healthy relationship, then, it's, then listening to these, obeying these commands are drudgery. And we want to rebel. We just want to do our own thing. You know, when Pippin was chasing those coyotes, he was convinced that his way and his objective trumped his master's. But isn't that often the way it is between us and God? We often don't understand. You know, doing things God's way may seem inefficient. It might seem ineffective, even risky. It may cost us something. Like the apostles being told to go back to the temple, to back to the temple courts and uh, to start preaching again. Really, we just got arrested doing that very thing. In this case, obedience is for God's glory, not about their comfort. It wasn't about their security and their own safety, but it was for God's glory. God frees them from prison in order to keep sharing Christ. At other times, God's way can seem boring, prohibitive, and not just not very much fun. In these cases, obedience can actually be for our protection. Consider Pippin again. Obedience in that moment is critical for his own protection. I can see this because I can see what those coyotes are trying to do. He doesn't understand this. He doesn't understand these things. He can't see that. It is tough to surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ giving God all authority in our lives, especially in the areas that we don't understand. Let me give you an example. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. The writer says, Let marriage be held in honor above all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Once a person has started having sex before marriage, 
it's really hard to stop. I've heard that from many couples. And yet, in our marriage retreat, for Lorianne and I, we include a list of spiritual, relational, and even financial, if you can believe this, financial consequences for when people have sex before marriage. So are God's instructions prohibitive, and do they fly in the face of everything that our culture celebrates? Yeah, it does. They absolutely do. But what we so often forget is that his call for us to obey in anything laid out in Scripture, not just in this area, but in any of them, is actually for our good. It's for our protection, and it's for his glory. That's why for our pre-marriage mentoring, we require couples not to live together and not to have sex together. I mean, why don't we just let our kids run onto the street? Why is that a big deal for us to stop them? Why do we even have speed limits and traffic laws? Why do job sites insist on fall protection? What are these rules in place for anyway? It's for our good. The prophet Isaiah reminds us that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Sometimes we don't understand. But it's in those moments especially that we need to listen because it's for our protection even when we don't know it. Now, the motivation to obey is not to be about obligation or duty. Notice that Peter uses the word must. He says we must obey God rather than men. It's not a suggestion. It's not a good thing to do. It's not something that, you know, we might consider, you know, one time in the future. It might be a, a, a good thing to, to think about when given the option Peter and the apostles are compelled. They're compelled in, opportun- in the opportunity to glorify God as a response to their love for him. Jesus connects obedience for his, with his love for the Father and lived this out as an example for us. He says in John 14, verse 30, he says, the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. But the world must learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. And then he connects obedience to our love for him. He says in just a few verses before that, in verse 23, he says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Obedience flows out of our love for God. It comes out of this relationship that we have with him. So I ask, what's your, what's your relationship like? Do you know the heart of the Father? Have you experienced that his heart is for you? That he wants the best for you? Can you trust that? Even when you read something in here that's like, well, I, I don't want to do that. That's risky. That's going to cost me something. Have you experienced his love so that there's a compulsion inside to go, oh God, no matter what, I will follow. 
And if you struggle with a relationship of love with your heavenly father like that, that is palpable, that is real, that is tangible for you, then I'd say, come up. Let's, let's pray for you after the service. Talk to your small group. Have them pray for you that your relationship with God can become rich and meaningful so that obedience is not just out of duty and obligation, but it's out of this love relationship that Jesus is talking about here. There is a strong and undeniable connection between our love for God and our obedience to him. For those in the Christian culture worldwide that teach the heresy, I call, I can live as I want and still go to heaven. That's antinomianism if that interests you, they miss this call to obedience. This this requirement to obey has been around since the Garden of Eden. Jesus upheld its importance. The apostles taught it. The Acts church lived it. What about us? What do we do about it? Do you read and study the word with your eyes to learn how to please God? Do you approach the word eager to learn how his love can be demonstrated by what we do and by what we don't do? There is a call for us to obey God even when the people around us don't agree. I like this phrase that I was told this week. Obey God down any road at any cost, wherever you lead, I will follow. Will you commit to that today? That's the call from God to obey. Let's look at number two. Correction when we don't obey. Verse 30, Peter continues his response. He says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Here's the Here's the cool part about God's correction. And it's right there at the end of verse 31. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel. Now, though he's he's speaking to uh, Jews at the time, we know he's speaking to all of us to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. Notice that Peter calls repentance a gift. It's a gift that we even get to repent is a gift from God. Have you ever thought about that? And yet many of us think that repentance is for those who are weak. Many believers I know don't even like to repent, nor even say they're sorry to others in human relationships, let alone God. The call to repentance confronts our pride, and we generally don't like it, 
I don't like it. Everything in me just kind of goes, ugh. Why would Peter call the opportunity to repent a gift? Well, when we obey the Holy Spirit's, sorry, when we disobey, the Holy Spirit's conviction will come upon us. And it comes in the form of guilt. It's that, it's that uneasy, sick feeling that we get inside when we know that we've done something wrong. Know what I'm talking about? Happens to me all the time. How do you get rid of it? You know, for some of us, we stuff it down. Others of us will just try to forget about it, never talk about it, never allow anybody else to talk about it because it just brings these things up. If that's what you're doing, well, how's that working for you? It doesn't work well for me. What I've realized is that repenting releases me from a guilty conscience. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about that. You see, confession, which simply means to agree with God that what we've done is wrong, it breaks the code of silence and admits the mistake. Repentance decides not to think of it in that way anymore, to not do that again. So repentance is a gift of freedom. Repentance is a gift of peace. And then Peter adds that forgiveness of our sin from God is a gift as well. Well, what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is releasing somebody from the responsibility that they have in our pain for wronging us. When we sin, we go against God's character. We disobey his commands. We wrong God. And we have a responsibility to bear. And in Romans... It says that the penalty of that sin is death, and we have to bear our own penalty. But Peter is saying here that once we confess and repent, our sin against God will no longer be held against us because Jesus carried it on the cross. It won't be held against us. Why? Because right in here on our text, Jesus is the Savior. He's our Savior, saving us from the penalty of sin. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sin... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That leaves no one out. It didn't leave the Sanhedrin out back then. It doesn't leave me out. And it doesn't leave you out either. We are not expected to be perfect in our faith or faultlessly con uh, consistent in our walk with God. Confession, repentance, forgiveness, they bring freedom to our human spirit and soul. And might I add, health to our body that nothing in all of life can, can bring. Just quickly, I have struggled with, with back pain for almost all of my life. But I can tell you that the more that I have walked in confession and repentance, the more that I have been willing to address the things in my own life, my own brokenness, the back pain is going away. And it's like every time I take a significant step of healing and deliverance, freedom from some of this junk in my own life, there's immediate response in my back. It's not just a soul and spirit issue, but the, the, the issues of our soul and spirit, they live themselves out in our bodies. I could tell you more stories, but maybe over the coming years, we'll have time for that. If we don't bother repenting, 
a guilty conscience can dog us the rest of our life. You know, for 17 years, we had another dog called Bailey. He was a little curly chocolate brown cockapoo. I think we may have a picture of him. Uh, he was Lorianne's dog. He would follow her everywhere she went. Even when he, she was in the washroom, he would paw at the door until he was let in just to be with her. He would sit on her lap at the dinner table if he was allowed. But that's kind of like a guilty conscience, just not so cute and not so cuddly. It can follow us the rest of our life. No matter what we try, we can't get rid of it. And when it festers, it turns to shame. And it causes us to hide from God. This was the response of Adam and Eve in the garden. But God pursues them as he pursues us to break through that sin, to break through that shame and draw us close, draw us back into relationship with him. God's correction is intended it's intended to lead us to confession, to repentance, and to receive this gift of forgiveness that he offers us. It's a gift that frees us from guilt and from shame. Do you not want this? But if that guilt remains after we have confessed and repented, it's usually what we call ungodly guilt. It often comes from the enemy and is intended to kill, to steal, and to destroy. I think many of us walk around with more guilt and condemnation than what God ever intended it to us to. Is it possible that ungodly guilt is actually self-inflicted? We're doing this to ourselves. Now, grieving our sin is an important part of godly guilt, but I think some of us hold ourselves perhaps even more accountable than God does. And so somehow we think it's more spiritual to beat ourselves up instead of receiving the God's forgiveness and his freedom. And so we hang on to the guilt. Maybe we think that that's what we deserve. And it might be true. That might be what you deserve and what we deserve. But why live like that if we don't have to? Jesus says you don't have to. And then we wonder why we can't get rid of our get rid of this sense inside of condemnation that we carry around deep inside. Perhaps we think we just need to work harder. We need to suffer more for it. But that's not God. That's not God. God brings conviction and guilt so that we will repent. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves, say it out loud, no regret. No regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. That's his grace available to us. Forgiveness, that is free to all. It doesn't matter what we've done. Will you receive it? You see, correction usually doesn't feel good. But it is good. 
it's good for us when we respond in repentance and receive his forgiveness. That's when we can experience waves, and I don't know if this has ever been your experience, but we can experience waves of the joy of the Lord come over us and even experience God's pleasure and his presence deep at the core of who we are. That's the gift that comes when we repent and respond well to correction. Number three, let's look at the benefit when we do obey. In Psalm 19, when David again was talking about the law and the statutes and the instructions, he says this in verse 11. He says, by them is your servant warned. In keeping, that's the protection piece. In keeping them, there is great reward. When Pippin eventually does listen and comes running to me, he averts danger that he didn't even know was there. Let's look at the benefit that's referred to in our text. Verse 32, and we are witnesses, Peter says, to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter says, we know these things. We were there. We were witnesses of Jesus, his message, and his ministry. And for us, we have the written word. We've got the concrete written word of, of those firsthand witnesses that testify to the truth of Jesus and his work on the cross. That is tangible. But Peter describes another witness here to this truth and the power of Jesus Christ that is intangible. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is an intangible inner witness of the message and the ministry of Jesus. He is intangible, but nonetheless, very real and legitimate. The benefit of obedience here is the gift of the Holy Spirit and his ministry in our life. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation... And believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The first thing that the Holy Spirit does, according to Peter's message here, is to confirm to us in our spirit who Jesus is, that he is risen and he is alive today in giving us the opportunity to repent of our sin and experience this freedom that comes from his forgiveness. What else does the Holy Spirit do? A whole pile of things. He comforts us when we are lonely or grieving. He intercedes for us before the Heavenly Father when we don't have words to say. We don't even know what to say. He fills our heart with God's love. He helps us when we are weak. He enables us to understand Scripture when it just seems like a bunch of words on a page. He convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. He empowers us to do what we could never do on our own. Even here in chapter 5, the Holy Spirit was protecting the apostles when they didn't even know it. In verses 33 to 42, we're not going to read that here, but you can read the conversation that's going on without these guys in the room. The Holy Spirit was protecting them, giving them their life, actually. Read that on your own. Perhaps today is your Sabbath. And if you are somebody here checking, just checking out whether... God is for you or not. Trying to figure out what God has to say about life, your life. Then you might as well know this right up front. You might as well know this now. God's people 
are called to obey him. If you're going to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, that call is for you as well. And when we do obey him, even though we may suffer when we disobey human authorities, in this case, we will be richly rewarded with the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our life. And I can't even begin to explain to you, try to describe to you what it's like to have the Holy Spirit living within us until you actually experience it yourself. And some of these things you're not going to be able to rationally figure it out because the Holy Spirit does this work in our own heart. It was the Holy Spirit that empowered these apostles to obey even at great sacrifice to themselves. Verse 40 They called in the apostles and had them flogged. That's the cost. Then they ordered them never again to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the high council, listen to that, rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. We obey even when it hurts because then we will get to experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit like these men did. Have you considered that it's even possible to suffer pain relationally, in the form of rejection, or emotionally, physically, and still rejoice? That's the gift. That's the benefit of the Holy Spirit when we walk in obedience to God and His Word. You know, Peter's short message here starts and it ends with obedience. I think he's trying to communicate to the Sanhedrin that it's never too late. It is never too late. Those were the very men that were responsible for Jesus' death. Never too late for them. And if that's true for them, it's never too late for us to begin to obey and to enjoy the benefits of the Holy Spirit in our life. I want to give us some time just to respond here. Is there sin that you've been unwilling to confess? You've been unwilling to go there. You're thinking that that's kept nice and secret away. Nobody knows this stuff. And <laughs> the Holy Spirit does. We learned that a couple of weeks ago. Has your pride blocked you from dealing with something that you know is in the way between you and God? Or maybe is in the way between you and another person? In what area have you been ignoring God's prompt to obey? You've been acting like Pippin. Yeah, not going to listen to you today. If that's true, what do you need to do about it? Would you be willing to face and to deal with some of these things before God? The worship team is going to come and be playing quietly in the background and then lead us in some worship. But here in just a few moments, I'm going to put some questions up on the, on the screen for you just to think through in case you need some words because maybe repentance for you is like, I don't even know what to say. I've just got some words up there, a little prayer that may prompt you, may give you some words. 
as you choose to repent. Psalm 139. Verse 23, and maybe this could be the prayer of your own heart today. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. God, I thank you that I don't know, I don't care what, it doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter the choices that we've made. Your call to obey, your call to repent, it's never too late for any one of us. So as we take these moments to reflect, think, would you do a work within us? Would you give us courage and the strength to face these things and to humble ourselves before you? And then Holy Spirit, as we do, would you come and minister to us in whatever way we individually need it for ourselves to, so that you are glorified in our life? I commit this time to you and I guard it in Jesus' name.